This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. I'm Steve Silverman, sitting in for Josh King this week. Two major events coming up this week with rich presidential imagery will take place. Tuesday in Washington, President Obama will give his sixth State of the Union address, where Washington, D.C. will pretend to be civil, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, uh, for about 90 minutes. And next Sunday, February 2nd, the sports world will gather for an event that is arguably more civil than the day-to-day combat in Washington, the Super Bowl. It'll be played next week at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey within a few football fields uh, of New York City. When he walks into the House chambers on Tuesday, Barack Obama will be engaging in a 214-year-old tradition begun on January 8, 1790, when George Washington first addressed the nation for a whopping 10 minutes as dictated by the Constitution. He'll be fulfilling his constitutional mandate that from time to time, the president shall give the Congress information on the State of the Union. We're going to learn a lot today, I hope. We'll be able to know who Ronald Reagan made famous Uh, in 1982 by recognizing him in the gallery. We'll discuss why the annual speech is so important to the president and the administration and why cabinet secretaries scramble to get their language in the speech. A shorter-term tradition, but way more important to many, many people, the millions who watch on television, will be the Super Bowl. It began back in 1967, and now in its 48th year, the Seattle Seahawks and Denver Broncos will do battle for supremacy of the gridiron. Whether President Obama attends this year's spectacle is anyone's guess, but if he did attend, he'd be the first sitting president to attend the big game. We're going to be joined by a group of three people who really know what they're talking about when it comes to this stuff. John King will join us. He's CNN's chief national correspondent, uh, and he's been around the political world and back. Michael Waldman is the president of the Brennan Center and a former uh, speechwriter for President Clinton. And Professor Elizabeth Sanders is a prominent government professor at Cornell, and she's the author of an upcoming book, President's War and Reform. First up, we have John King. People of the United States. This is POTUS. John King is CNN's chief national correspondent and one of the most respected journalists of the last 30 years. Growing up in Georgechester, Mass., he saw up close the power of journalism and joined the Associated Press in 1985, By 1991, he was named the AP's chief political correspondent and led the AP's coverage of the presidential elections of 1992 and 1996, where he got to see his tenacious and engaging approach up close. Uh, He joined CNN in 1997 and was the senior White House correspondent until 2005 when he became national editor. He regularly plays a lead role on CNN's coverage of elections and has become famous for his magic wall, which he uses to explain the election results. We have just witnessed a historic election. This is the money. This is where, in a close race, it is decided right here. I sat riveted to my television, and all because of one thing, CNN's magic touchscreen. And this is ground zero. I just couldn't turn away. (laughs) It still makes me laugh. Very few people in this country know as much about the presidency as John King. Not only a great journalist, but he's a friend and showed me the ropes a long time ago when I was a newbie starting out in the Clinton campaign in 1991. So, John King, uh, welcome to Polyoptics. We're thrilled to have you. Fun to be here. Nice to talk to you, my old friend. How are you? I'm very well. We have a lot to talk about. We want to talk about the State of the Union. We want to talk about the Super Bowl, both coming up next week. I'm sorry your Patriots are not uh, in the big game this year, but uh, it, sh- it still should be a doozy. 
Okay, let, let's talk about the politics more than the Super Bowl. It still should be a doozy. I think I would favor Seattle, uh, Peyton out in the cold, and uh, <laughs> I think Seattle's got a lot of young energy right now. I think if uh, they survive the first quarter, my my bet is Seattle, but we'll see. All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, back in 1947, uh, Time Magazine said that Harry Truman's uh, State of the Union speech, uh, the first one on television, demonstrated a lack of specifics and the dull roundness of his words. Uh, you know, 50, 60 years later, I sort of agree with that. I don't think it's changed very much. I wonder, uh, do you agree with the statement or what's the, how important is the State of the Union at this point? It's important, but it's always one of the great uh, dichotomy moments, I guess I would call it, in the sense that you'll have the pundits come on after and say, oh, my God, that was horrible, and it was just a long laundry list. And as you know, your buddy Bill Clinton uh, set the standard. He could go on for two or three days. Uh, at least it seemed that way. They ran, you know, more than an hour and the like. And you'd always say, I forgot that was boring. Where was the focus? Where was the urgency? And then you'd see the polling, and the American people loved it because they get a chance to hear directly from their president, whether they like him or not, whether they voted for him or not, about what he wants to do. And so it's an important part of the national discourse. I think this one's especially important, and you could say even incredibly important for President Obama, because, you know, presidential historians, meaning people a lot smaller than you and me, Steve, um, they, they say, you know, that the first year of the second term is the most important year. Well, the president had a lousy year in 2013. Mm-hmm. If you reread that State of the Union and his wish list, he got nothing. He didn't get a jobs program. He didn't get, you know, the gun controls he wanted after Newtown. He didn't get the infrastructure bank he wanted. He didn't get anything he asked for in the last State of the Union. And so this year he's going to ask for more with a focus on income inequality and jobs. But he's asking, you know, in the early months of a very tough election year, the time when the Republicans think, you know, they have a great issue in Obamacare and they don't really feel inclined to work with him. So um, I think it's a big speech for the president. I think the big question is, you know, does he try to push a policy agenda or is he really trying to frame the campaign year political environment? Uh, tell me, John, how important is the imagery, the pomp and circumstance, the drama of that night? A long time ago when I was working in the White House in the Cabinet Affairs Office, I remember being in the chamber when the president would come in and the excitement of the cabinet and the president and everybody being there. It's, a, it's, an, it's an unusual moment. It's like an inaugural in many ways. Uh, the pomp and circumstance, the drama of the night, how important is that to the experience? I think it, especially if you're at the Capitol, and uh, as you say, you're behind the, you know, if you're greeting the cabinet like that, you've got this sort of secret chamber uh, as part of the big theater. And it is a moment of dramatic theater. It's a moment when the country is supposed to set aside its big political differences and, and come together. That doesn't mean, you know, the Democrats will cheer and the Republicans will sit on their hands when the president says some things. That's part of the process. That's how it works. Uh, but it's become interesting just in my lifetime in Washington, you know, watching now you see uh, members of Congress, and I think this is a tad disrespectful, but both parties do it. You see them tweeting uh, and posting on Facebook during the president's address. And uh, in recent years, because remember a couple years back when uh, President Obama took after the Supreme Court because of Citizens United uh, and the um, the Republican appointed justices, the conservatives weren't happy with that, and, and they showed it in their faces. Uh, it was what Justice Alito, I believe, shook his head uh, when the president was doing that. And now some of them don't even show up. And so uh, the State of the Union, like everything in our politics, sort of evolves uh, evolves with technology and also shifts with the politics of the moment. And now uh, some of the conservative justices just don't come. You uh, you just talked about the change of technology, and we heard Harry Truman gave the first speech on television in 47. In the 20 or 25, 30 years you've been covering uh, Washington and politics, how much has the technology, obviously technology has changed, and what's been the biggest change in terms of covering an event like this? Well, I, I think the cable news era changed quite a bit. Uh, it gave us, number one, 
uh, a platform, and they felt the urgency to have a response from the opposition party. It would be the Republicans, of course, uh, during the president. Uh, I also just think that technology is that now you get, you know, and again, some of this is silly, uh, but because of email and because of instant communication and because of the perceived urgency in the political offices that, you know, you have to get your reaction out uh, right away. You know, the faster you get out your provocative quote, the quicker you'll get booked on the radio or booked on the TV, uh, where you'll get statements before the speech is even delivered saying, you know, uh, Senator Steve Silverberg says this about that, and you know, uh, and you get these. And there's a competition. You know, Elliot Engel will be on the aisle in the House. He gets there hours early. Uh, Anthony Weiner, now departed from the Congress, used to be one of those guys who put out a statement. You know, an hour before the speech, saying, "Here's my reaction to the speech you haven't even heard yet." Um, <laughs> what's the earliest? What's the earliest you've ever heard? Uh... A reaction, an hour, or is it ever, you know, a few hours before? A couple hours before sometimes you get them. Now, they're normally embargoed. You know, it says on top you can't use this until after the president speaks. But uh, when you get those from Republicans in this administration and you used to get them from Democrats in the George W. Bush administration, you know, they don't have an advanced copy of the speech. So they, you get a statement from somebody that says, tonight the president was a profound disappointment. He didn't address <laughs> any of the concerns of the American people. From a guy who has, you know, yeah, he might be able to guess what the president's going to say by reading the newspaper that morning. <laughs> um, but he has, you know, to me that's just silly. And, and the race to be first, and, and my business contributes to some of this, you know, because of the 24-hour news cycle and because of, um, you know, sometimes in some programs on television and some networks, you know, the the more provocative or sometimes the more crazy you are, the more likely you're going to end up on television. Um, you know, we contribute to that feeding frenzy, uh, but it's, it's silly. Uh, it's silly. And sometimes, you know, old school's not bad. Let the guy speak and, and then answer. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, these days, uh, like you say, it all happens so quickly and people are tweeting in the middle. It's hard to sort of sit there and focus and, and listen carefully to what's being said. Um, if all this barrage of Twitter and, uh, God knows with Pinterest and, uh, you know, all else, it's, it's going to, it's, it makes you, it's very hard to concentrate. Um, hard to concentrate. And yet, and yet, you know, you, it's, it's part of how we communicate right now. And like anything, as you get more used to it, you get more accustomed to it. And you, you can make an argument that, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter at sometimes um, contribute to the polarization and the courses of our politics. At the same time, they allow, you know, people to have, it's just a new way to have a conversation. In the old days, you had to shout at each other, or, you know, you might have to wait a few minutes to shout at each other or to hear it. But, uh, so it, it is what it is, uh, and uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, and you don't want to put the genie back in the bottle. It just, at times, you have to, I think, like anything, we learn as we go. Right. You mentioned the advent of, advent of the cable world uh, changes. Uh, now we have a post-presidential speech. We have the opposition that speaks. Um, it's been, it's not easy to get attention if you're the, the person coming after Republican or Democrat, uh, and it usually doesn't go too well. Um, there's been some times in the last few recent, few recent years, uh, Paul Ryan, Bobby Jindal, um, what happened for them? How, why is it so hard to do give a good, uh, uh, remarks after the state of the union? Well, number one, the person giving the speech is the president of the United States and you don't win the presidency without, without being a pretty good communicator. Um, that's not a partisan statement, whether you're Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. Uh, you know, those guys know how to give a speech. Um, they're a little different in their style, a little different in how they do it, but they're all good communicators. Plus, they have the great theater. They're standing there in the House of Representatives. They've got the Speaker of the House and the Vice President behind them. They've got, you know, 535 people in the room, the full House and the Senate and the, the, the Cabinet, the Supreme Court Justices, a national television audience. Uh, they have the grand stage. They're on Broadway, and then this poor 
you know, schmuck, and I don't mean that with any disrespect, right. whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, has to follow the president. And they're usually in a quiet room somewhere with, you know, two guys and a camera <laughs> pointing at them. And, um, and, and so it's, you don't have the energy, you don't have the enthusiasm, and you're not the president. That's no disrespect. You know, this year it'll be um, a member of John Boehner's leadership team, uh, Congressman McRogers of Washington State, uh, the woman in the Republic, House Republican leadership. Republicans think that's important. Um, she's, a, you know, she's a wonderful public servant. I'm not endorsing her policies or her politics, but she's a good public servant. She's in the arena like everybody else. She deserves respect. It's just hard uh, after you follow the president to give it in a static room. I remember during the, uh, the Clinton days, Christy Todd Whitman, when she was governor of New Jersey, did it once for the Republicans from the legislative chamber, so they could at least put an audience in front of her. Mm-hmm. And, and it was—it had a little bit more energy. It was—it's still a—you know—it's a—it's just a tough. That that person never wins. And again, that's not to be disrespectful of right. them. It's just mission—it's mission impossible. Yeah. Uh, and one one other quick footnote: what complicates it this year is because of the fight for the Republican Party. Is they're going to have a Tea Party address in addition to oh, a, a, tea, a Tea Party response? In addition to the Republican response, and so um, there's that's even part more of prime time, or is that part of a? Is that a third sort of? That's not part of the regular State of the Union slide. Then the opposition that's uh, off off the air, or is that going to be on the air with every with like everything else? Oh, well, you know, I'm sure at CNN. I don't know for our plan. I don't know our full plan. I don't know if we're going to carry the whole thing live, but. Uh, you know, Michelle Bachman did that one year, I believe, and uh, we'll take some of it, I'm sure. I'm sure, you know, Fox and MSNBC will use some of it. Uh, Fox will use it and probably say yay, and MSNBC will use it and say, wow, look at this clown. Um, you know, welcome to the nature of the business right now. Um, but it's, that's part of the process, too. And part of that is because, um, you know, it, it's there is a legitimate tug-of-war, some say civil war, within the Republican Party, uh, and this is part of it, that the, the Tea Party guys don't like the establishment, period. Well, it sounds like in, in 20 years we could have, you know, one State of the Union in three, four, five, uh, you know, follow-ups. Depending. We have the far left, we have the moderate center, we have the... That, the know. Whigs and the Tories. <laughs> and the... <laughs> we'll bring back uh, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. I did not expect to bring up those names in this course of this conversation. Um, you did uh, mention the great communicator before Ronald Reagan. Um, he really started one of the, uh, obviously spoke beautifully, one of the most important changes in the last uh, 20, 30 years uh, was his advent of pointing to a guest uh, in the, uh, the Congress, in the House of Representatives chamber, and acknowledging them and recognizing them. Um, and I think we have some, uh, some of that sound. And we saw the heroism of one of our young government employees, Lenny Scutnik, who, when he saw a woman lose her grip on the helicopter line, dived into the water and dragged her to safety. It's uh, great to hear that. I didn't know till just the other day that it's now called uh, uh, the Skutnik, uh, the Skutnik guests. Uh, and it, it really changed the way uh, State of the Unions are, are given and who's in there and what they're talking about. Uh, John, tell us a little bit about the other Lenny Skutniks in the last uh, 20 years. Well, you just see different people put, you know, different folks in there depending on their policy agenda. Um, President Bush was fond because of Iraq and Afghanistan playing out on his uh, turf and because 9-11 happened in his tenure of, you know, putting the heroes of Ground Zero, some of the New York uh, first responders who were up there after 9-11, some uh, heroes from Iraq and Afghanistan were up there. Um, when he was trying, the year he tried to push um, Social Security reform, he put some people up there who would be affected by that. Uh, President Clinton, uh, you know, was, I've talked to President Clinton about several times. He was a big fan of how Ronald Reagan used the stage of the State of the Union and used the human touch to put there. And so the year they did, you know, remember the First Lady's health care program, uh, Hillary Clinton's health care plan in 1994 uh, turned into a huge 
asset for Republicans in that election year. But in that State of the Union, you'd go back and, you know, the First Lady was up in the box with a couple of people uh, that the president was making the case really needed, you know, health care reform. And so this year, President Obama will focus on income inequality and jobs and the economy, and so you should look for him. Uh, obviously, he'll want some people up there, somebody who is making the minimum wage or just above the minimum wage, to make the case that you know the federal government should increase the minimum wage. Um, he knows Obamacare is going to be a huge battle in this election year, so I suspect you'll see as well people he's going to make the case are benefiting from Obamacare to try to counter you know early on in the election year the Republican argument that the program is a disaster, uh, and, and so on and so forth as you go through. Pick a priority. I would not be surprised at all since immigration is a focus if the president has, you know, a couple of um, what we would call dreamers, um, young Latinos who are undocumented but who were brought across the border by their parents when they were very young, and the president's obviously trying to, you know, advance immigration reform, and that's a part of it there as well. And so it, it's smart politics. Uh, you put a human face up there. You show them to a national audience. But, Steve, the way this works more and more now because of the um, – the way the news business has evolved and the deal you know, with the blogosphere and, again, Facebook and Twitter and everything else, uh, they are national faces. Some of them do national interviews, but they also do, you know, those people are always picked uh, in election year from key battleground states or now in a policy year, maybe from the state of a, you know, a key vote, a senator or a House member whose vote you need when you get to that issue. So it's smart regional and local politics as well as a national message. Is it a little risky? I, I noticed one name that sort of popped up uh, when I was uh, looking through this, uh, it, back in 99, uh, President Clinton, who, who made an art of this, uh, recognized Sammy Sosa. And of late, Sammy Sosa has come under, obviously, quite a lot of criticism uh, um, and allegations around uh, baseball and steroids, et cetera. Uh, is, so is it, is, it, is it bad if that happens, or is this sort of part of life now in Washington? You're saying Justin Bieber will not be in the president's box. <laughs> it has um, not been a good uh, couple of days for Justin yeah, Bieber. Uh, no, look, it's risky. Of course it is. Uh, of, of course it is, especially if you're going into, you know, there's there's always okay. the world. You know, you're trying then. Sammy Sosa was having a great year and hit all the home runs. and So you're trying to do something that um, is like sort of a pop culture moment, you know, to show the president can be cool, too. Or the, you know, and then something like that happens. Now, is that going to be held against the president for putting Sammy Sosa in the box that it later was... It turned out that he's, you know, one of the poster children of the steroid era. Not going to blame the president for that, but of course, you put somebody up there. You're giving them, you know, your good housekeeping stamp of approval. Um, if things go south, um, you know, you might be a little embarrassed. John, I want to pivot us to uh, the world of uh, of, of sports. Um, you're a, a great sports fan, I know, and and all sorts of uh, um, decisions go into how did the president end up at a, at a ball game or not. There's not been a president, uh, as I understand, it, that's gone to a Super Bowl. Uh, but uh, you've been at events where the president has attended, and uh, there's there's pros and cons, there's risks and rewards, and tell us a little bit about how people think about that. Uh, there are, and I don't think this president will go to the Super Bowl this year after just telling David Remnick in that New Yorker article he wouldn't let his, if he had a son, he wouldn't let him play football. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and we know he has said if the Bears made it, he yes. would go. Uh, yeah, it might be a long way. It could be a long um, time. Uh, you know, I've been at basketball games, uh, at the Wizards games in Washington, where President Obama has come, and he's always been a very warmly received. Um, you remember George W. Bush threw out the first pitch at Nationals Park in Washington, and uh, Less the, Bronx, warm. The, the Bronx cheer came to uh, yeah. came to Washington. Uh, as, uh, but, uh, you know, Bush shrugged that off. He's a, As a former baseball owner, he gets that part. Uh, my favorite day in sports politics, as I'll call it, will be in 1993, um, Bill Clinton went to the opening of what was then Jacobs Field. The Cleveland Indians built the new stadium, and it was the first day of the new stadium. And that night was the Arkansas-Duke National Championship, NCAA. So um, it was just an awesome day. Clinton threw out the first pitch, 
and Bob Feller was down on the field, and Bob Feller was, I was in the pool, I worked for the AP at the time, and Bob Feller was telling us the funniest stories about the old <laughs> days on the on the bus and women and drinking on the uh, road. That a few of us were so we loved Bob Feller's story so much we looked up and realized the president didn't, he was gone. He was walking off the field. <laughs> we almost lost the president. Yeah. And then then we went to the NCAA championship that night, uh, Duke versus Arkansas. That was the Christian Leitner uh, Corliss Williamson game. It was just awesome. One of the epic uh, games of, yeah. of all time. That's yeah, one of every, those now days. And then, every now and then the job has its benefits. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of those days sitting back in the White House, which is always an interesting, exciting place to be. But you're, you see the people on the road with the president that day, and you're like, oh, this one I'm jealous about. I was also jealous when people went to Cal Ripken's uh, uh, record-breaking game. Uh, I think that was like 95 or 96, and right. they brought me back a baseball. I was like, oh, this is great, but I should I wanted to be there. Uh, and then Clinton, I think, went to the Jackie Robinson, uh, the first Jackie Robinson, uh, when his number was retired, and all uh, players all over baseball um, honored him and retired the number uh, 42. So George Bush went to Nationalist Park. I think we have a little a little sound on that. And here to throw out the inaugural pitch at Nationals Park to mark a new era of Washington baseball, the President of the United States. To be fair to, to President Bush, I think that happens uh, not infrequently. And, and I after 9-11, when the country was going through this extraordinary crisis and still very emotionally raw, uh, he went to the Diamondbacks-Yankees uh, World Series game at Yankee Stadium um, on October 30th, 2001. And it really brought tears, uh, watching it brought tears to my eyes. The President of the United States. I never felt what I'd felt before when I walked out of that dugout. I felt the raw emotion of the Yankee fans. The crowd just erupts in a chant of USA. There is nothing like it that I've ever experienced at a ball game. It it was overwhelming. It was just overwhelming. President Bush is standing out there like a brick wall. I'm not afraid of terrorists. I'm going to stand all out here. I'm going to give you a thumbs up. I'm going to throw a strike. tell you, he, uh, I saw the pitch and he nailed it. He threw a strike from the middle of the mound and the crowd erupted. It was, uh, it was one of those great moments. Uh, as only can happen, I think, probably in, uh, in a baseball stadium like that after such an extraordinary uh, moment. Um, and, and, and Bush, whether you like or don't like his politics, he knows baseball. He knows uh, he, his Like baseball. an encyclopedia. And he has a great respect for the game. Uh, Bush, you know, had a great sense of humor. He didn't mind the booze sometimes. He used to always joke. Steve, when he traveled the country, you know, and near the end of his presidency, when Iraq was so unpopular and after Katrina, um, people would flip him the bird when he was driving by in the motorcade, and you'd ask him if it offended him. He goes, no, they think I'm number one. Um, <laughs> so, you, know, uh, he, you know, he had a good sense of humor about the, the, the ups and downs of the business. People have said that, and i got to respect him for a, lot, a number of things, but one, he once said he would never go to a World Series uh, until the Rangers uh, were in the World Series. So I respect that. Now, he did, you know, I think he... He felt it was the right thing to go in uh, 2001, so I, I obviously respect that. But it was—it's good to know he has—he definitely was a baseball guy and, and loved sports. Um, and uh, well, that day made a huge uh, difference. Um, we're gonna, John. We're gonna wrap up. I want for you to hear one thing before we go. You're a Boston guy uh, through and through, and we've gotten a, a very emotional clip that remind me of the power of the game uh, and our, our national leaders. This is a guy who never quite became president. 
but I'm going to stretch it into this presidential show and hear a little bit uh, uh, on, the, on the Ted Kennedy throwing out a first pitch at Fenway Park. We'll get some video just into MSNBC, a great sight from Fenway Park, where Senator Ted Kennedy tossed out the first pitch for the Red Sox. The game was supposed to be yesterday. It was postponed due to the weather. Fans were applauding. They gave him a standing ovation. Uh, you see there, he came out with a cane, but was walking well. Observation-wise, it looks a little thinner, but that smile still very much in place. And that was just a few months before he uh, passed away, so a very emotional moment for uh for uh, Senator Kennedy in Boston. So we see lots of different ways that these kind of moments, uh, sports can be used for so many things. Later on in the show, we'll talk with Michael Waldman a little bit about how the Olympics uh, play a role in uh, the president and vice president participating there. And of course, we have Sochi coming up. Uh, John, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're doing a great job. Uh, there's, I, I'm hearing some speculation. Is there a show in the offing for you? Or are we going to see you uh, even more uh, in, the, in the upcoming future? Trying to break a little news here, I see. Well, you know uh, what? So, I'm, a, I'm a newsman, so uh, yeah, I want to be like you in 1991 and 92. I'm on the hunt here. Uh, we're working on something, and we're pretty close to the finish line. We don't have the official authorization to go forward, but if you uh, tune in on State of the Union night, which is Tuesday, Whoa. you know, after we see the president's speech and the president's guests, uh, you might get a little, a little tease of the future. Let's put it that wow, way. Wow, John King, almost breaking news uh, on the polyoptic show here uh today john it's been a pleasure to talk to you uh thank you very much uh we wish you all the best and uh, we'll talk to you again real soon my pleasure steve take care be good bye-bye we are very happy to be joined uh on polyoptics this week by dr elizabeth sanders uh, who is uh, a leading uh, political scientist in, uh, in the Department of Government Relations at, uh, at Cornell, we, uh, which is my alma mater. So I'm very proud to have you on the show, Dr. Sanders. You've written a lot. You have a new book almost out, President's War and Reform. Uh, and we are very happy to have you here on, on the show. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm glad that you're a Cornellian. Well, absolutely. I had many good years, and I saw your, your offices in Whitehall, so I had a lot of good time in that building. Oh, goodness. Well, that's great. So we are, uh, we are here to talk about uh, the State of the Union and, uh, and the imagery and, and what it all means. And, uh, Professor, you've studied these speeches. How important is the State of the Union address overall? It can be very important. If uh, the president does a good job, uh, it does get a pretty big audience. And uh, I can remember hearing a few really good ones. For example, Clinton's, I think, in, in 98 or 99, when he was trying to pull himself out of the Lewinsky scandal, did a brilliant State of the Union. I mean, that guy's a good talker and speechmaker. But, um, so uh, Obama will be aiming for something like that. Um, he, he's not in the middle of that kind of horrible scandal, but he, he is certainly at a low point. Even in his own party, uh, public approval is not that strong. Who is he talking to on Tuesday night? You know, he is talking to the people, but but we as a people are so polarized that that you know he's talking to that fairly narrow band of of independents and and to his own party. I mean, he's got trouble in his own party. I think it's only about less than a third of Democrats strongly approve of him. He's got a lot of opposition there. You see the the Democrats willing to buck him on diplomacy. I mean, that when they buck him on foreign policy, you know they they really are feeling independent because he's at a low ebb. Um, so he does need to mobilize the base. The problem with the midterm elections, of course, and the reason they're so dangerous for the president is because turnout's very low. And people who are motivated and, you know, typically at this point in time, it's the opposition. They can come back and with 
um, you know, with a bare majority of the 38% who are turning out, which is, you know, say about a quarter of the population, if you've got them really mobilized, um, then, you know, you, you can defeat and you can win seats and you can kind of paralyze the president for the last two years. So- so this probably won't be a, a, a moment where he's making big pronouncements. We were, I was looking back and listening to some of the great uh, State of the Unions. I think we have some sound uh, from President Eisenhower uh, talking about uh, one of his priorities. Now, the threat to our safety and to the hope of the peaceful world is simply stated. It is communist imperialism. This threat has become increasingly serious as this expansionist aim has been reinforced by an advancing industrial, military, and scientific establishment. It's, uh, it's amazing you go back and you can hear this stuff. How important over the years, and you studied a lot of the years of the presidency, um, is foreign policy, does it, is it play an, a vital role in all this, or is it more of a domestic focus? You know, usually domestic policy is much more important uh, as a driver of elections and, and so on. And, the, you know, the public's kind of burned out on foreign policy right now. We've had these two very, very long and not very successful wars. And I think you see that in, in the support that uh, over 70% of people are given, giving to diplomacy with Iran uh, rather than war. People really didn't want a war with Syria. So I would think he's got to focus on domestic issues. And, uh, you know, Scuttlebutt has it. It's going to be economic issues, but that makes a lot of sense because he actually has more success there. Uh, the economy is improving, even though it's still sluggish. Um, the you know the trend lines are in the right direction, and he can talk about things like inequality and talk about issues really important to young voters, which he really needs, like uh, making college more affordable, uh, raising the minimum wage. Uh, things like that are are not con- not so controversial. Uh, foreign policy. You know, talking about Iran immediately gets gets you into hot water, even with yes. parts of your own party. So I think the focus is going to be on domestic well, you, policy. You, you make a very interesting point. Um, this whole inequality, incoming inequality, is certainly an issue that's uh, front and center. And I think we've got some sound from President Johnson, uh, one of the great State of the Unions and policy pronouncements 30 or 40 years ago. Our joint federal-local effort must pursue poverty, pursue it wherever it exists in city slums and small towns, in sharecropper shacks or in migrant worker camps, on Indian reservations, among whites as well as Negroes, among the young as well as the aged, in the boom towns and in the depressed areas. Our aim is not only to relieve the symptom of poverty, but to cure it, and above all, to prevent. It's uh, amazing when you hear that, and now it's, uh, you know, 40-some-odd years ago. You know, uh, what's striking about that, too, is uh, that that in those days you could talk about the poor. Now we only talk about the middle class. And I, I first noticed that with Bill Clinton. It may be earlier than that, but, but in Clinton's campaign it was all this middle class stuff. And the forgotten middle class. You're absolutely the, right. The, all the middle class and middle class. But the people who are really suffering the most are lower than middle class. 
And Johnson cared about them and talked about them, and I think the country cared about them. But for some reason now, you know, and if you talk about redistribution of wealth now, that got Obama in so much trouble. They talked about spreading the wealth a little bit through the tax code. So we're we're obviously in different times now. Do you think, uh, Professor, uh, New York has a new mayor, uh, Mayor de Blasio, and he's talked a lot about this. Do you think it uh, harkens a, a new era or new time, or does that still... Uh, are we still sort of very focused on the, you know, the rich and the middle class? Where do you it think might. this goes? You know, I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, in political science, we talk about political regimes, and I don't think the conservative regime that came in with Ronald Reagan is dead yet. Uh, I think it's it's still very strong, but it may be retreating. I, I'm, you know, as a political historian, I'm a great believer in cycles, um, and, and you never get too discouraged, uh, no matter what your point of view, because you know that, you know, your time will come again. Um, and values change public philosophies change we, we you know the deck is a bit stacked right now because we money is so terribly important and the supreme court has really kicked out all the uh, all the supports for regulating campaign finance um with a few more yet to come maybe but um so that that makes it harder i but i do think that that you're going to get that concern and you know the labor movement is still pretty dynamic even though it's very much on the run so um, I, I think you know that concern for the for the lower quarter uh, of the population will come back. Tell us, um, and that, that's uh, well, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out, and maybe we'll have you back in uh, over time and and uh, and see where this goes. Tell us when is your when is your book coming out? Oh gosh, I, I hope it's in another year, a year and a half. Uh, there, there's a big lag. I have all the data done, but I've got a lot of writing. A lot of writing. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe do, maybe do then by then you'll uh, we'll we'll get you back. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Very insightful. Uh, your, I, of course, said government relations at the Department of Government. I should know the name of the department up at Cornell. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful place, and uh, Dr. Scorton's doing a terrific job. And uh, really grateful for your time, Professor. Thank you so much, and have a, have a great day. Thanks for coming. Nice to speak with you. Bye-bye. Michael Waldman is joining us. He is the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law a nonpartisan law and policy institute that focuses on improving the systems of democracy and justice. Michael was President Clinton's chief speechwriter uh, for many years. He's the author of My Fellow Americans, which came out a few years ago, which is a great read about the speeches of the presidents. Uh, he's the author of an upcoming book, uh, Second Amendment, a biography in May. Uh, he's uh, one of the really smart young guys around these days and, and a good friend. Michael Wallman, thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Oh, my pleasure to be with you, Steve. Michael, uh, you were in the middle of it all for many years. Uh, it's uh, just a couple of days now before the State of the Union on Tuesday night. What is happening in the White House right now? Well, you're, you're right. This is, uh, this is the most intense period for speechwriters and for a lot of other people in any White House. And to, to uh, paraphrase our old boss, I feel their pain. <laughs> um, you know, a State of the Union speech is not just a speech. Uh, it's not just designed, of course, to get applause from the members of Congress in the room or even just to sound good to the people on television at home. It's also a policy document. It's where a president lays out uh, his agenda for the year. And so the choices about what go into a State of the Union are choices about priorities. It's one of those speeches where every word gets assessed for how much it costs. <laughs> Calling something a priority versus the priority uh, can mean the difference of billions of dollars. So uh, any administration goes through draft after draft. There's input from policy advisors uh, and officials. 
and ultimately, uh, I believe in this White House, certainly uh, it's the president that puts his personal stamp on a speech like this. I, uh, you know, I was, you and I were together in the Clinton White House, and I, I worked with the cabinet, of course, but I remember the intense uh, negotiations, competition, uh, really, it was intense to try to, to get you know, language in the State of the Union. And I would remember talking, well, can we get in these four words or this clause or can we put a comma there? I mean, if you get it in the State of the Union, then it's going to be a much bigger deal uh, that year for the administration. And, you know, the interesting thing is I, I had the chance to look at a lot of other State of the Union speeches because everybody would come in and they would give sage advice to the speechwriters. They would say, this year, make it not be a laundry list. Make it eloquent. Make it a, a tone poem. Uh, and I went and looked, and all the greatest speech givers among American presidents, their State of the Union addresses more or less were laundry lists. It's the nature of what a speech like this is. And, and the dirty little secret is actually that the public craves this kind of specificity from their president. They still watch the State of the Union because it's the one time every year that a president can actually talk directly to them about what he or someday perhaps she thinks the country ought to be doing. So you're right that everybody wants to get their stuff in. I used to joke that uh, when the State of the Union came around, we would install a round keyboard in my office so everybody could type at once. You that's, know? that's very funny. And wh- at what point uh, would the president, would you see him up front and get a sense of things uh, and then go back to him with drafts? How did that work in, in the Clinton White House? So with Clinton, over the course of eight years, um, he, uh, he, he, he evolved to the point where, at the very beginning, he would get a sense of and give a sense of what he wanted to say, what the themes were that he wanted to hit. Sometimes he would say, you know, this thing I said the other night at a fundraiser, that's what I want the themes to be, or something else. There would be an initial early set of conversations. Clinton, as we know, was voracious in reaching out to hear ideas from outsiders, and we would assemble for his Christmas vacation a thick book (laughs) of ideas from everybody whose book he'd read that year, uh, you know, Fox of Havel's speeches, and uh, as well as the cabinet, uh, and we would hold dinner very frequently dinners or, or listening sessions with thinkers or outside people, and then uh, you know we would make an outline and he would approve the outline, and then we would, it would start to go through draft after draft. And with Clinton, uh, he would take the drafts, cross out things, and write in between the lines or dictate. And we would actually sit in the Oval Office with a tape recorder. <laughs> and he would talk out loud of what he wanted to say. Um, then a few days before the speech, he would move uh, into the family theater where they have movies. Mm-hmm. And there was a uh, teleprompter set up, and he would rehearse. And while he was rehearsing, he would change it and change it up and dictate new things, and we would have to try to keep up. And after he was done, we would have a new draft, and we'd put that in the teleprompter, and he'd start all over again. It's a big process. He uh, he still holds the record for the... Uh the longest uh, speech uh, spoken, uh, and I think the you know there was plenty of times where it was taken right up to the last minute because he always had a lot of ideas. Even riding up in the in the limousine to the to the Capitol, uh, there was the famous moment in 1994 where the the wrong speech appeared on the teleprompter. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the 103rd Congress, my fellow Americans, I'm not at all sure what speeches in the teleprompter tonight. (laughs) 
but I hope we can talk about the State of the Union. The President had the remarkable ability to make light of a very difficult situation, so that's the State of the Union in 1994, and he, in 1993, had made this, uh, had the wrong speech was on the teleprompter, and, uh, and how did that all play out, Michael? Well, I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, I was not personally involved in that. But, <laughs> You're not going to throw anybody many, under the bus but now? But in many other teleprompter incidents. Uh, so I I, uh, I can tell you that in 1993, when he got up in September of that year to give the big speech unveiling his national health care plan, the speech that was somehow loaded into the teleprompter was his State of the Union from February of that year. And he... Remarkably, because he knew the policy so well and he knew the speech so well, he just started giving it while the wrong speech rolled across the teleprompter. And uh, if anybody uh, listening has ever tried to talk, to read something on a page but give a different uh, speech, it's almost impossible. He somehow managed to pull it off, while, and it took them about 10 minutes to fix the teleprompter. And he. Uh, was able to do that because he worked on the speech and knew it so well. And there are some presidents uh, who you kind of hand them the speech and they read it. Um, there have been all kinds of teleprompter mess-ups over the years. With Clinton in the 1997 State of the Union, which I did work on, we changed something like a comma uh, in the ride on the way up to the Capitol. And in so doing, uh, messed up the code. And so when we stuck the floppy disk into the <laughs> teleprompter, uh, which, you know... Teenagers today will not know. Anybody listening under the age of uh, 30 will not know what a floppy disk is. Yeah, look it up. Uh, it sounds like we're talking about quill pens, but we put it in the teleprompter, and whatever it was we had done had turned the entire speech into one long paragraph. <laughs> so we had to add the commas back in by hand uh, in the five minutes before Clinton got up to deliver the speech. Uh, but, you know, George W. Bush, when he spoke to the United Nations uh, and laid down his demands of Iraq... Uh, they had a very big debate within his administration over whether they should go to the United Nations at all or not. And Tony Blair and Colin Powell prevailed. And so he, over Rumsfeld, who did not, and Cheney, who did not want to, him to say he was going to go to the UN. Well, when he got up to deliver the speech, he got the teleprompter rolled along, and that line was missing. The fact that this, the teleprompter is operated by the U.S. military will leave that part out. <laughs> that, that line is, was missing. So Bush ad-libbed the line, and he said, we're going to go to the U.N. for the necessary approvals. But wow. because he said it plural, even though it was supposed to be singular approval, that enabled the French and others to say, wait a minute, you have to go back to the Security Council a second time. And so I was relieved. Uh, I, w I wasn't necessarily relieved that we were invading Iraq, but I was relieved to hear that the teleprompters didn't work for a second administration in a row. <laughs> it's not. It wasn't just the Clinton administration. Michael, uh, there's so much to talk to you about. What is considered the greatest uh, State of the Union address, kind of all of all time, after George Washington's uh, less than 10 minutes, 800 words, uh, whopping speech, uh, one of the greatest because it was shortened to the point. What's considered the greatest of all time? Washington, remember, had wooden teeth, so, you know, <laughs> didn't want to talk so much. And it's, an inter it's interesting that you mentioned Washington because, you know, the Constitution requires that the president report to the Congress from time to time on the State of the Union, but it doesn't say it has to be a speech. Washington and John Adams went up to Congress and gave a speech just the same way presidents do now. 
Jefferson thought that was kingly. He thought it was inappropriate. And so he sent his in in writing. And that's how they did it for over 100 years. It was not until Woodrow Wilson. And the modern era of communications, the president started going up to Capitol Hill again, and that became kind of a big show. Um, and using first radio and then television, now the Internet, um, uh, you know, these the speeches are communicated to a much wider audience. I think the case must be made that the most important, most powerful State of the Union ever delivered was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's State of the Union in January of 1941. He'd just been reelected. He had just gotten, this was before the United States was in World War II. It was a huge debate going on. He had just gotten Lend-Lease passed to help aid Britain against the Nazis and fascists. And he got up to, and we were not in the war, but he got up to to lay out what the war aims would be. And he said that they were four, based on four freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear everywhere in the world. That was in a State of the Union speech. It was even before we were in the war. It became the war aims. It became the basis of the modern human rights movement. Uh, we all know those Norman Rockwell posters that were from World War II. Um, and he dictated that. Uh, his speechwriters wrote about him dictating it uh, to his secretary. Is that right? Uh, and, you know, I think people knew it was a big deal at the time. And, and for those who live in New York or anybody visiting New York, I do encourage people to go to the Four Freedoms Park, which is a new memorial at the tip of Roosevelt Island in the middle of the East River, which uh, has a, a display of those four freedoms and which looks out over, among other things, the United Nations, which is one of the fruits of that speech. So that has to go down as the greatest. And uh, and Rockwell's uh, painting, I have to give a shout out. He was from, he spent many years in New Rochelle, my hometown, and so mm-hmm. uh, one of New Rochelle's proud uh, residents, Norman Rockwell. Uh, one of the my favorite was, uh, was President Kennedy, and I know you had a relationship with uh, Ted Sorensen, uh, one of his, well, his great speechwriter. Um, I have some sound from, uh, frankly, President Kennedy's last State of the Union. Half of the manufacturing capacity that lay silent and wasted a hundred weeks ago is humming with activity. In short, both at home and abroad, there may now be a temptation to relax. For the road has been long, the burden heavy, and the pace consistently urgent. But we cannot be satisfied to rest here. This is the side of the hill, not the top. The mere absence of war is not peace. The mere absence of recession is not growth. We have made a beginning, but we have only begun. Now the time has come to make the most of our gains, to translate the renewal of our national strength into the achievement of our national purpose. Michael, what made him such a great uh, communicator? Well, so you you heard that that passage started out with the humdrum, talking about manufacturing. And, and, you know, when you read John Kennedy's State of the Union addresses, they too are laundry lists. Uh, They go into the details of policy. But then in that passage, you heard him pick up the rhythm. And really what he was saying was pretty straightforward. We, We shouldn't be satisfied with the way things are. We have more to do. But he found a way to convey it with uh, uh, using a lot of the classical Greek techniques of oratory, of repeating things, of short sentences. Uh, Ted Sorensen, you're right, was somebody who I admired and got to know 
through the world of former speechwriters um, and worked with him on a variety of things. And he lived until quite recently. He was such a young man when he was President Kennedy's brain, as some people called him. And he, Kennedy, um, he worked with Kennedy, among other things, on Kennedy's inaugural address. And Kennedy sent said to him, "Go read the uh, Gettysburg Address and find out what the find out what the secret of its eloquence is." So Sorensen went and checked it out and went back to Kennedy and and said, uh, "Never use two two words where you can use one word. Never use a long word where you can use a short word." That that wasn't the entirety of it, but I think you heard some of that in that passage you just played. As we come up to the present. Um we have, um, you know, President Obama's uh, speech coming up. We talked a little bit about that with John King and uh, earlier, and Professor Sanders of Cornell. Um, we um, he's a, he gives a very good State of the Unions. Um, we have some sound, and, and part of what's interesting to me is how he uses characters uh, from the audience. He brings guests in, just like you know, President Reagan started this many, many years ago with Lenny Skutnik, uh, and last year he spoke about Newtown and had some guests. Let's hear some sound from that. Because in the two months since Newtown, more than a thousand birthdays, graduations, anniversaries have been stolen from our lives by a bullet from a gun. More than a thousand. One of those we lost was a young girl named Idea Pendleton. She was 15 years old. She loved Fig Newtons and lip gloss. She was a majorette. She was so good to her friends, they all thought they were her best friend. Just three weeks ago, she was here in Washington with her classmates, performing for her country at my inauguration. And a week later, she was shot and killed in a Chicago park after school, just a mile away from my house. Idea's parents, Nate and Cleo are in this chamber tonight, along with more than two dozen Americans whose lives have been torn apart by gun violence. I, uh, I was very struck uh, by that whole uh, and the, the rhetoric uh, and the closeness to Newtown, of course. Um, of course, that didn't end up so well for the president in that there, there was a no, arm, no uh, gun control passed last year. So is it risky when you make such a big statement like that and you make a big deal? I mean, is that, you have to do it, but is it a little bit of a risk for the president? Well, I think that the, the the risk, in a sense, was a strategic choice to make a big push for gun control, uh, which is an issue that uh, the president had shied away from for four years. Yep. Um, and I think that the goal was to seize the emotional energy coming out of the Newtown massacre and to try to push for some pretty commonsensical and minimal yep. changes, you know, background checks. Um, you know, I think in reality... Uh, it was a, it was a it was it was a risk and and had it succeeded it would have been uh, rewarding and worth it but uh, you know the fact is the pro gun rights uh, forces the NRA and others have been so well organized and on the march for so long that the pro gun control uh, coalition was really um, not. As strong yet, and so the, the the risk was not in the speech so much as the political decision to push for it. Um, and uh, you know, these speeches, the words are choices. The words have political ramifications and implications. And 
you know, so I certainly hope, for example, in this speech, that he talks about uh, not just about the immediate tangible goals, not just about the need to enhance opportunity or or economic fairness through something like the minimum wage, but I hope he talks about the fact that the government is broken and that if we don't fix the political system, we're not going to solve our problems. And uh, if nothing else, a year ago, he talked passionately about voting about how uh, much of a disgrace it was when people had to wait in line for hours. Well, uh, since then, two things have happened. First of all, that night he appointed and announced a bipartisan commission on voting at the speech. Well, that commission issued its report just now, and it's really good. It's got leading Republicans and leading Democrats coming forward with reforms that would actually make it a lot so that a lot more people are registered and a lot more people could vote. That's real bipartisan action without waiting for Congress. And the other thing is that this, since that last speech, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, the most important and successful civil rights law on the books. And uh, there is legislation now that Republican Congressman Sensenbrenner and Democratic Congressman Conyers and Lewis have introduced that is backed by a lot of leaders of the Republicans as well as Democrats to fix the Voting Rights Act and revive it. Uh, again, I think that there could be some real power uh, in talking about those voting issues. And given that he talked about it a lot last year, it would be kind of weird if he didn't. Well, that's uh, we have that to look forward to. You know, hopefully, you're, uh, the Brennan Center, which you're the president of, has done, has done remarkable work in this whole area of voting rights and voters, voting access. Every time I pick up the Times, it seems there's a, a big article on some uh, success you all have had. So, um, you know, that's uh, what you all do. And I think it seems like you've had a great you know, year or two. Um, is that the main focus of the Brennan Center? So, you know, the Brennan Center is a nonpartisan think tank and legal advocacy group, and we do focus on trying to make the systems of democracy and justice work. And you're exactly right that the 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 struggle over how we vote in America has, has proven to be a very, very significant issue for us. You know, this is voting is the heart of democracy. It, it ought not be something people fight over. It ought not be the subject of partisan contention. But uh, in the last few years, there have been a lot of laws passed all over the place that would make it harder for people to vote. Uh, and we've worked hard to block those. Those have been uh, overwhelmingly blocked by the courts uh, and in lawsuits that we brought and others. But even more than that, we have some ideas for ways to modernize the voting system so that everybody who's eligible is registered. Nobody gets to vote who isn't eligible, but everybody who is eligible gets to vote. And, you know, if we modernized our voter registration system, which is the main roadblock, uh, you know, it's based on paper and it's full of mistakes, but also lots of people who are eligible can't vote. If we modernized it and made it so that there were com- proper computerized lists of everybody who's eligible and wants to be registered, you could add up to 55 million people to the rolls, and it would cost less and have less chance for fraud. So that's the kind of thing that we ought to be focusing on rather than making it harder for people to vote. Well, that's uh, certainly um, an opportunity, it sounds like, and, and um, good luck with, with all the work you know, that you're doing. I have to ask before you go, I noticed one of the people um, on the State of the Union, just back to that for a moment, one of the people that the President Clinton highlighted was Rosa Parks uh, in yes. 1999. And I just have to feel that was a remarkable moment for the president um, and uh, 
and and you and and what was uh, what was that like? And tell us how that all came to to pass before we wrap. Up. It was quite a, it was quite amazing. And and uh, you know Rosa Parks was was alive, and uh, there was a, a real grassroots movement. Really, a lot of people wanted her to be honored and to be sitting in the box with Mrs. Uh, Clinton. And I, you know, I, a lot of people thought, well, gee, I mean, I, I wasn't sure it was such a good idea. What wound up happening was the Speaker of the House, uh, Hastert, said, well, I'll have her in my box. And then everybody at the White House said, well, we'll, we'll have her in, with uh, the First Lady. Um, and it was a remarkable, remarkable moment. And when, you know, when you see uh, the entire U.S. Congress, um, uh, regardless of political affiliation, standing and applauding somebody who made America live up to its ideals uh, and that she was still there and still fighting. It was a great thing. And she was, uh, I, I recall talking to her a little bit afterwards. At the, oh, there was boy. a party at the White House and she was quite pumped about it. So it's not it's not probably the biggest thing that she ever did, but uh, it was nice to be able to be a part of it. My God, was that the first time she had been to the White House? Probably not. No, but I, I, I don't think she'd been sitting in the gallery in that way. That's a great way to, to wrap this up. Uh, a great moment in State of the Union. Um, history. And uh, Michael Waldman, a pleasure to speak with you. You're super knowledgeable about all this. Um, your upcoming book, uh, Second Amendment of Biography, is due out in May. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time today, Michael. Good luck with all you're doing. Thanks a lot, Steve. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.